And well, welcome to today's show. Great to be with you for a post Eurovision first move vision edition of the program. Congratulations to Sweden on this weekend's big win, and on our first move playlist this hour. Ankara angst presidential elections in Turkey appear headed for a high stakes runoff later this month. With almost all the votes counted, President Erdogan failing to pass the key 50% mark. We are live shortly with the latest, plus Chequers chums. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak meeting at the PM's retreat. Zelensky calling on the UK for fresh support ahead of a much-anticipated spring offensive. Britain responding by sending drones and more missiles. And artificial intelligence relevance will speak to the CEO of education giant Pearson about its big bets on generative AI. The big question, whether for-profit education firms can compete with free chat GPT, or we'll be discussing later on the show. So lots to chat about as we kick off a new week on global markets. Positive action in the United States, a mixed picture in Europe, though. And I can give you a look at that in just a second. The German DAX pulling back a little after hitting a one-year stock market high. Today's U.S. trading, though, I think reflecting some much-needed optimism on the ongoing debt ceiling drama. Negotiators reportedly making progress ahead of an expected meeting tomorrow between President Biden and congressional leaders. We've got an update on all the details on that later on in the program. For now, Turkish equities lower in volatile trade, a reflection, I think, of the uncertain weeks ahead before a presidential runoff, with many now giving President Erdogan the second round advantage. The benchmark index currently down by some 3% bank stocks, broadly lower. Watch the currency as well, too, because that's under pressure. Turkish stocks, though, have rallied this past year on hopes for leadership change and possibly new policies to tame an inflation rate that's running at over 40% officially and stabilise the currency and bolster investor confidence. But the Turkish lira falling to record lows against the dollar today. You can see that uh, intraday now around two-tenths of a percent higher for the dollar. We'll discuss what kind of future voters are choosing for their country later in the programme with a former EU ambassador to Turkey. But first, the latest on that vote count, and it's official. Turkey's election council announcing the country will have a runoff election on May 28th. No candidate has the 50% threshold needed to win outright. Germana Karadze stayed up overnight reporting on every angle of the vote counting and joins us now. And Germana, it looks like you're headed for another sleepless night later this month. Well, it looks like it, Julia. I mean, this was uh, looking like the likely scenario as we uh, headed into the early hours of this morning with neither of the candidates looking like they had achieved that uh, 50% threshold uh, that was needed. I mean, for President Erdogan, just over 49%. But I mean, Julia, he still defied the expectations uh, leading up to this election. All the polling that was coming out from this country did put the uh, the opposition's candidate, Kemal Kılıç in the lead. Uh, there was that possibility of a runoff that was expected, but they did... Uh, 
uh, put Kalich Darulu in the lead. And this is clearly not what we have gotten so far. Uh, it seems uh, both sides are saying that they are ready for a runoff. This is what we have heard from both the opposition and uh, from the Turkish president saying that if this is the will of the Turkish people, they are going ahead to this uh, second uh, round. But, uh, you know, the opposition is still trying to maintain this very positive uh, attitude about all of this, uh, saying that they believe they can still do to do this, Julia. I mean, this is something we haven't seen in this country before leading up to this uh, consequential election for the country. You had the opposition really diverse coalition, left, right, centrist, uh, conservatives, uh, defectors from President Erdogan's party, backed by Kurds. I mean, this was a very diverse coalition, something we hadn't seen here before. And they believed that this would give them that advantage, that they would be able to unseat President Erdogan by going in to this election together as a unified front with one uh, candidate. But it does seem that this was not enough at this point. And, and I mean, for President Erdogan, this is not victory, but this at this point is uh, he sees this and his supporters sees this, see this as a win uh, so far. I mean, he has his ratings have really suffered in recent months and recent years, whether it is because of the economic situation in the country, the economic crisis, the hardship that uh, almost every person you speak to in this country is facing on a daily basis with the uh, double digit inflation, with the uh, the uh, lira losing much of its value over the past uh, couple of uh, years. Yet still, with that, and of course, the response to the earthquake back in February, that disastrous initial response by the government and what was what they've been criticized of the lack of preparedness. Uh, there was a lot of speculation. How is this going to impact President Erdogan? And it does seem, Julia, at this point, he has emerged from all of this unscathed. Yes, this is the first time where you see Erdogan going into an election and not coming out uh, victorious. But still, he has managed to gather the support of about 50 percent nearly of this population. And really, if you look at these results, yet again, it is a reflection of what a divided nation this is and what a truly polarized society it is. Absolutely. And I think to your point, an incredible result, given the, the amount of criticism he's faced, the handling of the economy, currency crisis, um, high inflation, the criticism of the, the earthquake. Um, now we see what the runoff brings. Germana, great to have you with us for now. We'll discuss this further later on in the show. For now, a warm welcome for Ukraine's President Zelensky as he visits the United Kingdom today. Take a look at this tweet by British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak showing the two sharing an embrace. This latest visit is part of a European tour by the Ukrainian leader who's looking up to shore support across the continent. He also provided more detail about the coming Ukrainian counter-offensive. Listen to this. We really need some, some more time, not too much. We'll be ready, you know, in some time. I, I, I want to be very honest with you. I, I can't share with you some days. I, I just don't want to prepare. Not, not for our friends. There are no secrets from our friends, but there are some secrets from, from our neighbors. That, that's why we have to, to prepare. And, and I'm here not only because of this support, but of course, including this support, it will help us to be more strong. 
And Sam Kylie joins us now from Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Sam, that's a consistent message from President Zelensky and the point that he doesn't want to let uh, perhaps enemies know what they're up to as well. But um, it is important, too, I think, that they did get more support from the United Kingdom, though I think his big plea is still fighter jets and they remain elusive. It's just going to take time. Yeah, very interesting that uh, the British government has already endorsed uh, President Zelensky's uh, pleas for F-16 fighter jets backing away. This is the Ukrainians from their pleas for the Typhoon, which is uh, less useful to them in any case. It's not much of a bomber, it's a fighter. So the UK, UK though, giving uh, training, fighter pilot training to Ukrainian pilots, or at least announcing that they're going to do that, announcing longer range attack drones. These are very important piece of equipment from the U Ukrainian perspective. And of course, more air defences. Again, very important equipment. To uh, coming, Julia, at the end of this uh, campaign really waged by uh, President Zelensky in his whistle-stop tour around uh, Europe, drumming up support, making sure that the pledges are there for a long-term investment in Ukraine's military capability, extracting very substantial uh, pledges from the United Kingdom and Germany in particular, and keeping the Russians guessing once again, saying, oh, we're not quite ready yet for a counteroffensive, but a counteroffensive is coming, signalling to Russian troops on the ground that something pretty terrifying is coming down the tracks at them. That itself is part of the psychological operations that the Ukrainians are already conducting as part of the early stages, if you like, of what will be or is hoped to be or assumed to be a ground offensive by the Ukrainians, Julian. Yeah, there's a physical war going on, but there's certainly a morale war or battle going on. And tied to that, I wanted to ask you what the latest is from Bakhmut. A couple of things, the Ukrainians hailing their recent advantages. And then I saw um, that the Wagner mercenary boss was forced to uh, refute a report in the Washington Post that they'd offered Kiev uh, intel on Russian troops in exchange for territory. What do we make of that? Well, let's deal with Prigozhin first. This man is a murderer. He runs a murderous organization that has been designated by the United States as criminal, uh, as uh, the French Parliament as terrorist organization. The French are asking the EU for a EU-wide designation as a terrorist organization, something that the British are also considering. Uh, and he is uh, famous now for, or infamous, for expletive-laden statements criticising the Kremlin, criticising the Russian war effort. It doesn't necessarily, therefore, come as a surprise that he may have engaged in a bit of wink-wink, nudge-nudge attempts to uh, sell out his own country to uh, the Ukrainians. Equally, this is the preliminary stages of a, an offensive being conducted, potentially, by the Ukrainians. So disinformation is very useful in this sphere. He has denied it, lampooned uh, these allegations, uh, including that saying that he wasn't even in Africa where he's alleged to have been at the time when he's alleged to have been there to allegedly meet with the uh, Ukrainian intelligence officers. So in that context, I think it's just part of the maelstrom of nonsense, really, that frequently surrounds uh, Prigozhin. It's very, very difficult to establish what his agenda really is. But more importantly, where his fighters are in Bakhmut, you rightly point out, the Ukrainians are winning a bit of ground back after many months, really, of very grinding warfare. They've been able to recapture significant chunks of the outskirts of that town, potentially 
actually giving them the tactical advantage with the possibility of even encircling the mercenary group that is active there. And more importantly, I think showing up frictions and poor communications between uh, the mercenaries and the wider Russian armed forces and potentially also signaling to Russian troops that Ukrainians are capable of getting very much on the offensive. And again, that plays into trying to undermine the Russian soldiers' will to fight, because that ultimately is Ukraine's most important strategic weapon. Break that will to fight, and they could break the Russian invasion uh, into pieces here in Ukraine, Julian. Yeah, back to the uh, battle for morale. Um, I think that might end up being the quote of the show, actually, the maelstrom of nonsense. Fortunately, we have you, Sam, to cut through it. Thank you. Sam Kiley there. Thanks for joining us. In the meantime, voters in Thailand have dealt a powerful blow to the incumbent government. The progressive Move Forward party winning the greatest number of seats in Sunday's general election. And the party's leader is wasting no time, already calling on other parties to join with him in an alliance and oust the current prime minister. CNN's Paula Hancocks joins us now. Um, Paula, sort of my reading of the Move Forward party is that they are a party of reform, whether that's in terms of economic policy or seeing the removal of the influence of the military and leadership in the country too. Um, do we have a sense of how many of the other progressive parties will join them in some kind of coalition and, and the power that that gives them to enact change? Well, Julio, it's interesting because the one party that was pledging the biggest changes, the, the most uh, reforming changes, is the one that secured the most votes. The second, Pur Thai, which uh, was the favourite going into uh, this election, has already said that they would work together uh, with Move Forward. So the progressives have already said that they're going to be working together because they understand that it is important to have as many seats as possible within this coalition to make sure that they can carry out the reforms that they have spoken of. So Move Forward is uh, saying there will be structural reforms. They will reform uh, the economy. They want to reform the military, i.e. to make sure uh, that the military is taken out of politics. And they've also gone even further uh, and they want to reform the once untouchable monarchy. Now, we've seen there has been a parade through the streets of Bangkok uh, by Move Forward and its leader. And we, we heard from the leader a little earlier. People of Thailand have already spoken their wish, and I, I am ready to be the Prime Minister for all, whether you agree with me or you disagree with me. I have congratulated uh, Kun Pai Tong Tan from Pure Thai for her hard-fought campaign and have invited her to join the coalition. And that uh, includes uh, five more parties in the previous opposition. So the coalition is building as we speak, but there is not necessarily a guarantee that the leader of the biggest party is going to be the prime minister. Now, Peter understands that he needs as many uh, within this coalition as possible because uh, over the last few years, when the military-backed parties have been in control, they've changed the constitution. Uh, the deck has been stacked in favour of those military-backed parties. Uh, for example, there are 750 MPs that need to vote for the prime minister, but 250 of those are part of the Senate, and they have been 
elected by a military-backed party. So clearly that is where their allegiances lie. So this is really what we're looking at going forward. How can Move Forward uh, make sure that they do have as extensive a coalition as possible? But certainly the mood on the streets this evening, local time in Bangkok, was jubilant as they watched that parade going through the streets, uh, saying that they felt as though they had been listened to. And the key to this election was the youth, uh, a, a more vocal, a more empowered young generation who is more interested in politics, who wants to change the future of their country. And that is certainly what we saw with this vote uh, on Sunday, that many youth came to vote. In fact, it was a record turnout uh, for Thailand. But of course, it is not a done deal. It'll be five days before these unofficial results become official. And then, of course, this deal making happens to find out exactly who will be prime minister. Julia. Yeah. Winds of political change. We'll see where they lead us. Paula Hancocks. Thank you for that. Now, a 78-year-old American citizen has been sentenced by a Chinese court to life in prison on spying charges. John Leung, who is also a Hong Kong permanent resident, was detained two years ago by state security authorities. Authorities in Hong Kong have been notified and are now following up. China hasn't provided any further details. The sentencing comes as relations between Beijing and Washington are at their lowest point in 50 years. Ivan Watson joins us now. Ivan, when I read this story, I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't even and didn't recognize his name. What, what more do we know about him and, and, and the charges against him? Right. Well, we really didn't know that this American citizen had been in Chinese custody for, for more than two years until the court in Suzhou uh, issued this statement today announcing that he had been sentenced uh, to uh, life imprisonment on the charge of espionage. They uh, identified the man as John Shinwang Leung, uh, 78 years old, a U.S. citizen, also uh, a Hong Kong permanent resident who'd actually been uh, detained since April 15th of 2021. Uh, we don't have really further details on that, except that the Hong Kong government, the, the highest security official in the Hong Kong government, uh, did clarify in a press uh, conference that uh, the administration here in Hong Kong knew about this case going back to 2021, but did not add any further comments on this. Now, we've reached out to the U.S. Embassy, uh, and they also say that uh, they're not going to comment uh, on this case due to privacy considerations and that they have no greater uh, priority than the safety and security of U.S. citizens overseas. Uh, I, I would like to add that just last week, the U.S. National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, he met for hours face-to-face -face with uh, his Chinese counterpart, Wang Yi, in Vienna, and they had discussed a whole wide range of issues. But among the, the issues that Sullivan reportedly brought up were the cases of uh, Americans uh, allegedly wrongfully detained in Chinese custody, Mark Sweden, Kai Lee, and David Lin. We did not hear the name of this ind individual who's just received a life sentence in China. One final detail is that the Chinese government uh, has been tightening uh, the rules for what it defines as espionage. Uh, it passed a law uh, making it much stricter uh, some years ago and just last month has tightened those rules even more, making it uh, potentially very, very dangerous to hold on to any documents, even uh, any papers that the authorities could uh, judge to be a, a national security matter.
Julia. Yeah, I mean, there's, um, there's so much detail in that. You know, what's quite fascinating and what stands out to me, actually, is what you said about those talks. Several hours on one occasion, I think I read eight hours worth of talks between high-level officials and the choice here, Jake Sullivan, rather than the U.S. Secretary of State. Interesting timing, important breakthrough, given that I just said in, in your introduction, a 50-year low in relations. Important to to be around a table and talking, I think, at this moment for many reasons. Absolutely. And also the fact that, I mean, this was uh, on Friday, that both the Chinese side and the White House put out remarkably similar statements, meaning that they, uh, for once, these two governments, their, their delegations were able to come to agreement, and not just about that, but also to agree that they would uh, maintain this important strategic channel of communication, and one step further, that they would build on the engagement between President Biden and President Xi that was reached back in Bali on the sidelines of the G20 summit uh, in November of last year. That's not the kind of language that we've heard in months ever since that that Chinese surveillance balloon was detected over the U.S. and then shot down by the U.S. And that basically scuppered a planned uh, visit by the U.S. Secretary of State Blinken to Beijing. It could be a sign, these talks last week, that the, the, two, the world's two largest economies are headed towards some kind of uh, common ground, which would probably be welcome uh, if you're talking about uh, stability around the world. Absolutely. Watch this space and um, agree on the um, remarkably similar statements to uh, movement here, clearly, I think. Ivan Watson, thank you. Great to have you with us. Welcome back to First Move. And returning to our top story, Turkey's hotly contested presidential election. President Erdogan has failed to gain the 50 percent threshold needed for an outright victory. The main opposition leader saying now he welcomes the upcoming runoff election in two weeks' time. My next guest said in the run-up to Sunday's vote that for the first time in 20 years, a change of leadership in Turkey is possible. And it would mean dramatic shifts in foreign policy, the role of Turkey in NATO and a tangible impact on security in Europe. Joining us now is Ambassador Mark Pierini. He's a senior fellow at Carnegie Europe and a former EU ambassador to Turkey. Ambassador Pierini, great to have you on the show. Um, can I just start by asking you about this vote? Are you surprised by the level of support that President Erdogan achieved in this election, given the backdrop, the challenges with the currency, with the economy, the criticism over autocratic rule? Is this a surprise? Uh, well, certainly uh, all the polls were wrong, uh, uh, both for the opposition and for Erdogan himself. So it is to an extent a surprise. But what's important here is that, number one, as you just said, we have a second round on the 28th. And number two, uh, the parliament is now known and uh, whoever wins, Erdogan or Kilisaoglu, will face a majority of the current incumbent uh, majority, that is AKP, uh, Erdogan's uh, party, and the Nationalist Party, MHP. So we are facing a more conservative, more nationalist uh, parliament, uh, and that, of course, has uh, a strong importance for Erdogan himself. What does it mean if he does indeed, as I think investors are predicting now, and certainly the view is perhaps this does sway the likelihood of President Erdogan winning that second round vote. 
What does that mean now for him as he pushes forward? Because you could argue that the status quo may be maintained on much of the policy, but one could also argue that, you know, the country can't withstand that. Some things have to change. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it means two things. One, if ever Kilitarulu was elected, he wouldn't be able to reintroduce parliamentary democracy because uh, he wouldn't have majority, qualified majority in parliament. So what we have in front of us is five more years of the super presidential regime introduced five years ago. That's one. Number two, if, as it seems likely, Erdogan prevails, well, it means more autocracy and uh, more uh, confident relationship, let's say, with Russia, and perhaps uh, continued disruptive relationship with the West and in part with NATO. But part of the challenges, and, and clearly the country is deeply divided, is the fact that we've seen a currency collapse, uh, investors fleeing from Turkey, and there was hope in the lead up to this that perhaps some kind of leadership change might help that. President Erdogan has intervened, not allowed the central bank to raise interest rates to try and stabilise the situation. Do these kind of policies continue, Ambassador, in your mind, if President Erdogan does win the, the second round? Well, in, in that case, very difficult to predict a, a change uh, for the better, according to Western standards. Number one, because this uh, interest rate policy uh, is very, very personal to Erdogan. It has religious roots uh, and he is convinced and uh, it, it, you know, uh, it was a, a long standing conviction of his that uh, low interest rates help lowering uh, inflation. Well, it's of course the opposite. Uh, and therefore, they have spent billions and billions of the uh, currency reserves. They've sold gold. Um, currency reserves are now negative. Net reserves are negative. Gold has uh, been reduced quite a bit. So uh, that is the biggest question mark uh, for the future uh, presidency, including if it is Erdogan himself. Either he reverses completely his views, uh, or he continues to run the economy on steroids, uh, like he's done with Russia, with the Gulf, and with others. I think it's something that the um, opposition leader needs to be pushing in the next couple of weeks to try and help people understand the consequences, perhaps, of no change in this policy is just one point of this. Um, there were some suggestions, by the way, of irregularities, though I know the institutions are considered relatively strong despite some of the pressures. Are you concerned that there's any interference in this vote? Well, we will see what the OSC uh, election report is. Uh, uh, I think there was uh, some kind of fraud, uh, but probably uh, very limited and probably not one that would have changed the result. Uh, what you have is a super powerful uh, uh, AKP party, powerful for several reasons. One, because uh, Erdogan is himself uh, a fierce leader and, and, and a speaker, um, but also because you have a system which is well known of uh, kickbacks from public tenders. And this is what, for 20 years, has made this uh, party very powerful, that is very rich, uh, let alone the fact that, of course, the campaign was unfair because it was, as usual, run with all the state means and with Erdogan in control of most media. Uh, so what we've sample 
statistics for uh, April was that Erdogan had 32 hours of live TV and Kilicharlu had 32 minutes on public television. Oh. Wow. I mean, that's a statistic. I don't think you can, um, yeah, impress upon the importance of having the influence over the media and able to minimise the opposition's power to um, uh, speak their mind and tell you what they uh, want to do for the country. Oh, Ambassador, I think we've lost your line. Um, yes, he's frozen. OK, I'm going to thank him there. Ambassador Mark Piorini, a senior fellow at Carnegie Europe and former EU ambassador to Turkey. Welcome back to First Move. Authorities at the U.S.'s southern border say encounters with migrants have more or less halved in the days since the restrictions known as Title 42 expired last week. The Homeland Security Secretary says it's still too early to know whether the surge in numbers trying to enter the U.S. from Mexico has peaked. Paulo Sandoval joins us now from El Paso, Texas, near the border. Paulo, this is really quite interesting. I just wonder whether the real surge came, actually, when the Biden administration took over and the build the wall talk of the Trump administration ended. And actually, that was far more influential for these people than, than what we're seeing today. Would you agree? Absolutely, Julia. In mm -hmm. fact, the, the migrant presence that we're seeing here in El Paso, Texas, many of them are those who surrendered to federal authorities leading up to the expiration of that Title 42 public health authority. Uh, so the folks that you see behind me are those who have already been processed by federal authorities and released. Um, however, many of them, uh, there's no more room at some of the shelters here in the community. So many of them turning to sidewalks to for, for, for where they're staying overnight before continuing with their travels. Sunday morning along the border near El Paso. Quiet. A remarkable change from last week and a far cry from the anticipated crush of migrants expected. The United States Border Patrol has experienced a 50% drop in the number of encounters versus what we were experiencing earlier in the week before Title 42 ended at midnight on Thursday. The reason, he says. We have communicated very clearly a vitally important message to the individuals who are thinking of arriving at our southern border. There is a lawful, safe and orderly way to arrive in the United States. And then there's a consequence if one does not use those lawful pathways. With Title 42 expired, federal authorities now leaning on Title 8, a decades-old protocol for asylum seekers with lengthier process times and more severe consequences for crossing illegally, including deportation, a five-year ban on re-entry, and a possible criminal prosecution for subsequent attempts to enter the United States, according to Homeland Security. And I think hopefully the immigrants are heeding the advice. So we are, of course, we're concerned because we still know about the numbers uh, in Reynosa, even here in Reynosa, and the numbers that are coming from different areas. But uh, as right now, we are within capacity and we're logistically doing well. Republicans in Washington pushing back on the administration's approach. They can't predict the peak. CBP said 40% increase is expected with Title 42 gone. That's another 9 million people in two years. I mean, they've already let 5. 04 million encounters and 1.5 million gotaways as they've tried to manage border security and not secure our border. We're still in high alert. Still, southern border communities are concerned about overcrowded and under-equipped migrant processing and detention facilities. Migrants like Connie Barahona and her daughter Daniela released from detention 
but not sure if or when they will have the resources to continue their journey. And as migrants keep arriving in New York City, the mayor this weekend announcing that the vacant Roosevelt Hotel will now be used to house hundreds of asylum seekers. A new measure taken as many mayors from around the country plead for Washington to solve the immigration issue once and for all. There is no end game in communities like El Paso and the southern border. We can't continue for infinity. And back on the streets of El Paso, 7.30 this morning, many of the people who are have been spending the night on the sidewalk just outside of one of the shelters here in downtown El Paso. Again, these are the folks who have not been able to make their way into a shelter because many of those, Julia, they are still at or near capacity. Uh, so what this 50 percent drop in some of the encounters uh, along the border is doing is allowing some of the uh, federal facilities to process these migrants to basically catch up with the demand, but also an opportunity for many of these shelters to get uh, help uh, to some of these individuals that hope to leave these border regions and make their way into various American cities. Julie, I, I speak to many of these individuals. They tell me they're heading to Denver, Colorado. New York City is one uh, as well. And that is the figure that is going to continue to rise, regardless of what we see here in the border region. The number of asylum seekers uh, seeking temporary refuge in some of those American cities. But they're lucky there wasn't the kind of surge that perhaps others were anticipating or that the challenges of, um, of dealing this would have been greater. Um, Paula, great to have you with us. Thank you for your insights um, from El Paso there, Texas. Welcome back to First Move. Since the emergence of ChatGPT and Google's Bard, there's been plenty of talk and certainly some warnings about the rapid adoption of artificial intelligence and its impact on education. Pearson, the British publishing and education company, says AI has been a big part of its work for years. Though last week it announced plans to further integrate artificial intelligence into its products to enhance those for students and educators. And joining us now is Andy Bird. He's the CEO of Pearson. Andy, great to have you on the show. Um, I feel like ChatGPT has been a sort of light bulb moment for most of us, but surely you have to have been thinking about AI and the impact on your business now for a long time. How does what you were already doing differ from what you announced last week and welcome. Thanks, Julia. It's great to be uh, on the show. Um, As you say, as the world's leading learning company, um, we embrace technology. And in fact, we've been using artificial intelligence across our businesses for about two decades now. And with the rapid innovation of ChatGPT and other larger language models, we see this as a a unique opportunity to embrace this new technology. But um, as you reference, um, the broader large language models do come with um, their, their foibles, as you say, or their hallucinations, as sometimes referred to. And that means in terms of all the information that they have uh, ingested from uh, public sources around the world. There is um, a lot of fact, but there's also a lot of fiction. And where we um, can differentiate ourselves, of course, is with our own intellectual property. Um, Through thousands and thousands of textbooks, for example, that go over decades of really pure information. And what we found is if you ingest this pure information into these large language models, you get better results coming out of the um, the other side. And there is a trust and a purity to um, the, the results, which we think serves faculty and students alike very well. 
Okay, but that sounds very complicated. Andy, I'm going to put this into English because I think actually what you've already done is answer my next question, which is what does the adoption of artificial intelligence tools give your consumers going forward what they didn't have before and and what is superior to using chat GPT? And what you're saying is what you're going to do is overlay and remove some of the crazy that many of us have seen and heard about and read about and probably experienced for themselves, the fake information that can be garnered from from chat gpt is that is that what you're going to do in essence yes um these these large language models like chat gpt and others um have an appearance of intelligence but they're only as intelligent what they really are are predictive algorithms so what they're trying to do is really predict the next word in a sentence based upon the data that a user has inputted. And that's what causes sometimes a misreading of the input combined with the information that these large language models have that creates false answers. Clearly, that's something that that we can't um, live with and faculty and students don't want either. So if you only input pure data, For example, one of our leading biology textbooks, Campbell's Biology, is the sort of definitive authority for college students in the United States and around the world studying biology. As we input the past editions of Campbell's Biology, the output of that is only drawn from that proven, um, uh, peer-reviewed information that goes in. And then I think the other thing that's very important is it's not If these large language models existed just through regenerating words, then um, all we'd have to do is really uh, read the Oxford English Dictionary or Webster's and these models would, would, would be perfect. They don't lack the structure that teaching, for example, gives its experience. These, these models don't uh, um, have the knowledge and experience and context that you get in in the real world. And that's where I think companies such as Pearson can really benefit. Yeah, I think every conversation I've had with this suggests that human intelligence and an overlay is required when you're using this kind of functionality. But there is a humongous difference between chat GPT three and a half and chat GPT four from what I've seen. So I think a lot of that crazy, I'll call it, or the hallucinations in your word is filtered out, which is important. Why would check, which is, um, I think what caused a bit of a shakedown in in sort of the educational players sector, say that their service, their um, homework help service is already being threatened by chat GPT. If, if to your point, this sort of overlay of human intelligence is required, I guess the danger that they foresee is that people don't care about that, or they perceive chat GPT to be enough. And why should they pay for a product like yours, if there's a inferior, but alternative option available. Andy, how do you fight that? Well, we're in a completely different business to Chegg, and uh, the answer is is somewhat in your question. They're in the homework help business, and amongst others. And if you are looking for those type of answers, then there is an alternative with ChatGPT with its inherent flaws, although, as you say, GPT-4 isn't much improved on on 3. We're in the learning business. We're actually on the other side of the coin. We're about helping 
individuals improve their lives. And you can only do that by learning. And it takes work. And what you can do with um, ChatGPT and others is actually help that process. You know, one of the, the, the great tools we're, we're working on is about personalizing that learning experience for individuals because we all learn differently. We all learn at different rates and we all come across different problems in our learning journey. And so using these algorithms to help you as a student overcome some of those hurdles is, is more of the area of focus, plus the, the purity as I say, of the actual learning materials that we're utilising in these models. Yeah, and, and that point I most definitely take, given the experience that I've had with some uh, chat GPT functionality. Um, would you agree that this is perhaps the biggest disruptor, for better or worse, that the industry's faced? However, you've just got to know how best to harness it. And I think we're all guessing at this stage. Yes, I think this is a, a, a one of the... Um, few examples where sort of artificial life is is running faster than real life and I do think that we need to be cautious there's been many many others that have spoken about some of the challenges that that um, technology like this can can play um, we want to um, lean into it but we also want to be cautious because I think being thoughtful about how you utilize this technology and, and really we're a company built around trust is very important. Right. I do think, and you're seeing um, the EU, the UK and the US governments and others look at le potential legislation in this area. I think there's an area around personal privacy and personal data that's also been maybe used to train some of these models. I think that that is something that um, you're going to see um, at, uh, come into effect as sort of the real world catches up with the, the phenomenal advances in this technology. Yeah, and we welcome that. I think that's a, a great quote. Artificial life is running faster than real life and we need to be cautious. Um, Andy, great to chat to you. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. Andy Bird, the CEO of Pearson. Back to first move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Monday on a beautiful May morning here in New York City. Blue skies above, but mostly red arrows on Wall Street after a losing week, actually, for both the Dow and the S&P 500. Another busy week ahead for investors, too, including key earnings from some of the major U.S. retailers. All this after a big drop in U.S. consumer sentiment data on Friday. The latest round of U.S. debt ceiling talks on tap for tomorrow, too. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying over the weekend, quote, I'm hopeful. I think the negotiations are very active. I'm told they have found some areas of agreement. Progress, perhaps, but still a long way to go. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, happy Monday and welcome Hi. to the show. Um, I, I think there's a... Um, a desire at times to roll your eyes where self-imposed <laughs> debt ceilings are concerned and, and the drama that takes place as a, result, as a result of it. But for small businesses, for individuals, they kind of have yeah. to prepare and act like something bad's going to happen. And we're already seeing it. We absolutely are already seeing it. I talked to Gene Marks, who is an advocate for small business this morning, and he told me already his many of his clients are securing uh, alternate uh, lines of credit. They're looking for other sourcing of income, especially 
clients, uh, his clients who are working way downstream of federal contractors, right? So we're talking about small businesses that might have a piece of that federal uh, dollar. Um, they're looking to make sure that they've got enough money laid away for payroll. So now if you're trying to make sure that you can handle payroll for the next month, say, that means there are other investments or other things you're not doing with that money, right? And there's just kind of a, a, a cautious crouch that starts to creep in. And that can be bad overall for the economy, even if they figure this uh, all, all this nonsense out. Now, you showed that uh, Janet Yellen um, quote, you know, found some areas of agreement. And then this morning we heard from Kevin McCarthy, um, the House Speaker, who said, and I quote, we're still far apart. He doesn't think the president takes it serious. So you still have that political overhang here of uh, a House speaker who barely got the speakership, who is now trying to really um, keep this alive, this, this I guess, this contra- controversy with the White House. I mean, he's against a lot of, the, um, a lot of the, the, the legislative achievements of this presidency. Kevin McCarthy and his, you know, the people who really support him don't agree with what the president's doing. So mm. you really still have a big political story here. The luxury of being the biggest economy in the world and having the deepest, most liquid bond market is that you can play with fire like this and um, people put up with you, quite frankly. Um, If we compare and contrast with emerging market countries... What we see when they're approaching default or there's nervousness around it is that the front end of the interest rate curve spikes higher. Interest costs get higher. And it sort of ties to what we're hearing from bank CEOs like Jamie Dimon saying that we're having war rooms over this because we know rising interest rates have created a problem in the American economy. And if you see that kind of spike, the sort of filter effect of that could be pretty huge. It really can. And and remember, in 2011, they did uh, raise the debt ceiling before the so-called X state by, I think, two days. And it still raised borrowing costs by $1.3 billion on that that pile of, of national debt that was sitting there. So even this even this 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 theater that happens now more frequently than you would like this theater about too much debt raises the cost of the too much debt i mean you're hurting yourself so i think what's happening now that i think is interesting julia is is they're talking about budget and they're talking about maybe kicking the can down the road. Uh, maybe they'll see some agreements to future spending cuts. Maybe they'll be able to claw back some uh, unspent COVID spending. Maybe those are the signs of, uh, of agreement that compromise. the Treasury Secretary found. Com- compromise, right. Are- some areas of agreement, <laughs> she said. So for what it's worth, I'll uh, believe it when I see it. <laughs> Do you know what? I, I just got wrapped there. I don't know whether you did. I wasn't saying anything, but it was my fault. Too long a question. <laughs> Christine, we love you. Thank you, Christian. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for the show. I'm being wrapped again. Connect the world with Becky Anderson, who's up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.